Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, December 10th. On the show this week, no deal. The Prime Minister returns from China without an agreement on future trade talks. We'll find out why. Then, the intercessional round of the NAFTA negotiations gets underway tomorrow in Washington as congressional members and business leaders call on President Trump not to cancel the deal. Will he listen? And we'll unpack the politics of the Prime Minister's trip to China and news the government is preparing to buy used fighter jets from Australia that are as old as the ones they'll be replacing here. First, the Prime Minister returned home late last week without announcing the start of formal free trade talks with China. So what happened and why is a free trade deal with China apparently out of reach? In a moment, we'll talk to the Parliamentary Secretary on this file, but first, here's your West Block primer. It's been a one-sided deal. And this includes Canada, by the way. As Canada gets bad-mouthed by our once-friendly neighbours to the south and doing business with them is more uncertain than ever, the Feds are doing what anyone would, looking for new customers. China has a lot of them, nearly 1.4 billion in fact, the second biggest economy in the world. The prospect of selling our goods barrier-free to a market that big is understandably tantalising. But China isn't like any other country. Get yourself into a customs dispute over there, like this BC winery owner did, and you could end up behind bars. So how do you reach a free trade deal, or even a framework for one, with a country that doesn't play by the same rules? As the Prime Minister found out last week, it won't be easy. And joining me now is Dave Lametti, who is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Innovation. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Great to have you on the program. Pleased to be here. Uh, did your government set expectations for this trip too high? I don't think so. I, I think we knew it was going to be difficult from the get-go. Uh, we have been talking about engagement with China. We promised it during the last election, uh, in contradistinction to what the previous government did. And we knew that it would be a step-by-step -step process. Um, uh, we knew that it would take time. We knew that it would take uh, a concerted effort uh, by different people, the Prime Minister, other ministers. Uh, we've had a number of visits by ministers. We've, now we've had the Prime Minister go with, with a handful of ministers and other Canadians. So we, we knew uh, that this would be a step along the way, and we're continuing on. We, we think the process is, is by no means done. We are working forward. Um, Still continuing on in our in our pre-negotiations. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to reach a formal negotiation stage uh, at some point soon. But it, but we expected this to be complex, uh, and we expected to go in with our eyes open. That's what Canadians expect from us, and that's what we promised we'd do. With all due respect, I think the language going into this trip was a little bit different. And we interviewed uh, Minister Navdeep Bains, the Minister of Innovation, last week. Have a listen to how he described what what to anticipate on this trip. Is your government pursuing an actual bilateral deal? I understand there are opportunities, yes. and, and you and the Prime Minister have spoken at length about those, but uh, will there be sort of, will those manifest in a formal capacity? That's the objective. We want to move forward in a meaningful way to advance trade discussions between Canada and China, and that'll be top priority. So if that was the objective, did your government fall short on this trip? Well, I think we're still we're still in process. As I never disagree with Minister Baines, as you know, but uh, but as his parliamentary secretary, uh, as as uh, Minister Baines said, we want to move forward. We're still moving forward. We made progress. Uh, there there uh, are still steps that we have to take. What uh, are those steps? Can I ask? Well, sort of we qualify to, to Canadians. Where are we far apart? Too far apart to come to an agreement on some sort of framework? To well, move there uh, there there are a number of balls in the air uh, in any kind of trade agreement. Uh, they are extremely complex. You're trying to fundamentally uh, 
align uh, government priorities, sectors of the economy. Uh, we're well aware uh, that we're dealing with an economy that's very large, they're, they're huge compared to us, um, and they're a very different economy in, in, in the sense that they have uh, state-owned enterprises, SOEs as they're called, and we have to, we have to take that into account moving forward. So I, I don't want to uh, identify any one sticking point. Uh, I just really want to underline the complexity of all of this, and that as with any trade negotiation, you move forward uh, in uh, a number on a number of different tables, if you, literally, but also metaphorically, on a number of different tables, and that's what we're doing here. Uh, so I think Minister Baines was right when he said we wanted to make meaningful progress. Uh, we did make meaningful progress. Uh, did it result yet in formal negotiations? No, I think that's clear. But we are moving in that direction. We continue to move in that direction. When you say you want to align on certain, you know, basically you want to align the two governments. How much more difficult is that, and, and, and in all seriousness, realistically, with a country like China, with labor standards and, and a, you know, that are so different than ours, and a human rights track record that is universally you know, thought to be very, very poor? Well, I think, I think uh, China, like Canada, aspires uh, to be better at uh, labor standards, at, at human rights, and on the, and on the environment. Uh, I think but that, really, I, I mean, think they were that, putting their hand in front of our journalists well, as, there. As, a, as an aspiration, I think, uh, I think there are differences in terms of the practice. Uh, I, I think we have to admit that. But I, I do think we have to continue uh, to push forward on that, uh, on that progressive agenda. I, I spent a year consulting Canadians from coast to coast to coast on the, on the old TPP. Uh, and and uh, what I heard from Canadians from coast to coast to coast was that they wanted us to be thinking about labor standards. They wanted us to be thinking about the environment, about gender. There has been a large, uh, we see from, from, from geopolitics over the last couple of years, there has been a large sense of, of disenfranchisement from the benefits of trade agreements. Trade agreements are very beneficial to our economy. There's no question about that. We believe that. We have to push forward to open up markets for our, our Canadian uh, producers. But there, there seems to be a large number of people who feel that we haven't benefited from that. And, and as the Prime Minister mentioned uh, in, in, in one of his exit interviews from China, uh, we have to be conscious of that context and that challenge. And so unless it's a progressive trade agreement, uh, we're going to have a great deal of difficulty convincing our fellow Canadians that this is good for us. Um, and so we really do have to push forward with those very aspirational goals for trade agreements. So. It's, it's not just about opening up our markets. Yes, it is about opening up our markets, and we can't always, uh, we can't all, there's, there's give and take in any, in any trade agreement, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but we still need to keep those aspirational values in front of us as we move forward. Okay, thanks for your time, Mr. Lametti. Thank you very much. We have trade deficits with everybody. Virtually every country in the world we have trade deficits with, and that's going to be changing. It's already changing. And we're going to look at NAFTA very, uh, very seriously, so we'll see how that plays, but uh, it's going to be very successful. That was President Trump last week talking about NAFTA during his meeting with a group of pro-trade Republican senators. Tomorrow, NAFTA, NAFTA negotiators, I'm sorry, meet in Washington to try and move the talks forward ahead of the ministerial round next month in Montreal. So how, how hard will that be? Joining me now from Toronto is a stakeholder in these negotiations, Unifor President Jerry Diaz. Mr. Diaz, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, always my pleasure. Before we get to President Trump's recent comments and NAFTA, I wanted to touch base with you about China. Were you surprised at all to see the Prime Minister come home without even the prospect of working towards a free trade deal with them? 
Well, not really, because the Prime Minister and the Canadian team, candidly, have been very specific that any trade deal that they're going to sign, that, frankly, human rights is going to be the cornerstone of their foreign policy. So if you take a look at what they're doing with NAFTA, for example, labor is front and center. So there's no question, unless China is going to start to make some move on labor standards, human rights, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, then I'm not concerned at all that he really walked away empty-handed. As a matter of fact, it makes sense. If you look at where it's at today with China, Canada has a $43 billion a year deficit with China. So the only discussion right now that should be having with China is how do we reduce that? And my guess is if we look at our history of free trade deals that we've signed, the $43 billion deficit would only just get worse. Can you really, though, as the Canadian government, make human rights the cornerstone of, of any kind of deal with a country like China? I mean, is that is the prime minister sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth, if, if that is the case? Well, look, China has 1.4 billion citizens. We have 34 million. So the, ta the tail is not going to wag the dog. That's crystal clear. But... You have to walk into a trade deal and you have to deal with trading partners that at least share your same values. Why would we entertain and continue to encourage uh, trading relationships with nations that frankly have no respect for labor, human rights, uh, don't have any social responsibility? So you really have to take a look inwards as a country to say, listen, who are we? What do we want to be? Are we just selling ourselves to the highest bidder? If I take a look at China right now, I'm more concerned about what's happening in Canada right now with China. Um, I'm concerned about the fact that the Chinese government has, has a $1.5 billion bid for ACON, and ACON is on the cusp of $125 billion worth of infrastructure, construction business. I'm concerned about the fact that Canada is selling our satellite and military technology to China. So. China has already infiltrated Canada as the number one investor in Canada, surpassing the United States. So I have a whole host of concerns about China, what they're doing domestically, and of course, what we're talking about trade. Do you think very quickly then that a free trade deal with China, given uh, the concern around human rights, is impossible? Well, I think it is impossible. Um, the first issue for us has to be, what do we get out of it? Like I said, we already have a $43 billion deficit. So what's the plan? What's the strategy? What are we going to export to China? Our exports from Canada to China are going up, but we have such a small percentage of the overall trade between the two countries that it's insignificant. So before you even think about it, you have to A, deal with the human rights issue, but then B, what are we going to get out of it? The interesting part of all of this is that there's a big push for trade agreements around the world. Canada does much better when it comes to imports to nations around the world that we don't have any formal trade agreement with. Canada's trades to those countries with no agreements. Exports are going up almost 7% a year. To countries in the world that we have a formal free trade agreement with, exports from Canada to those nations are going up a little over 1% a year. So if those are the raw numbers and the straight numbers, why is there a push to sign free trade deals? You don't need a formal trading agreement to have trade, and that's clear because Canada does much better without the trade agreements. So let me ask you then that exact question on NAFTA. Uh, obviously, you're on the inside of that process. Do you believe the same is true of NAFTA? Yes, I do. NAFTA has been a colossal disaster for Canada. When Donald Trump says that NAFTA is a mess, that is the only thing that I agree with him on. Pre-NAFTA, Canada had a trade surplus in manufacturing. Today, we have a $120 billion deficit. 
We've closed four auto assembly plants here in Canada. They've closed 10 in the United States. They've opened eight in Mexico and they're opening two more. Mexico has 8% of the auto market and 45% of the jobs. Under the Mexican industrial system, they have yellow unions, which are signed protection agreements for corporations. Can you imagine BMW is going to open a plant in 2019 in Mexico, and the workers are going to get paid $1.10 an hour? A Mexican worker can never afford to buy the car that they build. Almost 50% of the population of Mexico lives in poverty. So why would we sign a trade, uh, a trade deal with a, uh, with a country where we know it's going to continue to get worse? So that's why I'm proud that the Canadian team, and we are all pushing very hard to fix it, get rid of the, uh, the yellow unions, have free collective bargaining, and frankly, give Mexican workers the opportunity to share the wealth, enjoy its uh, equal standard of living that we are enjoying here in Canada and the United States. So trade, for the first time, we're actually discussing is about people. It's not just about corporations. It's, it's not about free movement of capital. So I welcome the philosophical and fundamental change, because if we can get NAFTA right, if we can start talking about workers instead of just profits, I would argue that the world will be a much better place. So let me just make sure that I'm clear, though. Is it your preference that NAFTA not exist or that it be fixed? Well, fixing it is the priority because regardless, there's going to be trade between Canada, the United States, and Mexico. So if we can fix it, perfect. If we can't fix it, if the trade agreement will continue the exploitation of uh, Mexican workers to the loss of jobs in Canada and the United States, then we're better off walking away from it. We're a $120 billion deficit today in manufacturing. That has to change. And the only way that changes is if you start to put into place trade deals where you talk about, I give you something, I get something back. So trade is a two-way street. And as of now, NAFTA hasn't been. So if we can't fix it, walk away. We're much better off. Okay, Mr. Diaz, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Prime Minister returned late last week from China with little progress on future trade talks. What happened? Our chief political correspondent David Aiken was on that trip and he joins us now along with Canadian press reporter Joanna Smith. Thanks very much for being with us guys. So David, you're, you're fresh off the plane. What happened on that trip? Yeah, it seemed that the Canadians were expecting to sign a framework to begin formal negotiations on a, on a trade deal. And they arrived in China with the expectation that that was an achievable goal. As it turned out, the Chinese, the senior leadership of, uh, of China, namely Premier Li Keqing, was looked at, reviewed the deal and decided it was not at that point in China's best interest. So a bit of a disconnect. Normally when leaders show up together, senior leaders, a prime minister, a premier, a president, the hard work at the bureaucratic level is done and clearly it wasn't at that stage to be done. And so we remain in quote unquote exploratory talks. So there will be people in this country who are very happy that the prime minister mm -hmm. did not sign a deal. They object to the idea of a China free trade deal. Many others, exporters, uh, will say, missed opportunity, Prime Minister, what happened? But I think the expectations were there that something more was going to come out of last week. We just spoke with one of the people who is happy about that, Jerry Diaz, the president of Unifor. He says a deal is impossible. Do you think, given things like human rights, labor standards, and, and what, you, what you witnessed, I guess, this week on the Hill, that a deal is impossible? Well, I think what it really does is sort of underscore and perhaps shed a bit more light on why the Liberals are pushing so hard for what they're calling a progressive trade agenda, right? They got that into CETA, the deal with Europe. They're trying to push for that 
things on gender, environment, labor at NAFTA. And, and there's a sort of a lot of thinking around that the NAFTA talks, that the gender, environment, labor stuff isn't really so much about NAFTA. It's about sort of setting a stage and a precedent for future trade deals, mm -hmm. um, one of them being China, right? So they sort of uh, clearly recognize the sensitivity around the issue and the fact that a lot of people are really uncomfortable with free trade with China. And that's sort of one of the reasons they want to be trying to build these things into those talks. But of course, that didn't go over so well. So. And yeah. we should point out, we, we started talking to the Prime Minister last week um, about his trade agenda. Uh, China free trade talks stalled. TPP stalled. NAFTA because in peril, at, you know, at best or at worst. And, uh, you know, so Prime Minister, you've been talking about a trade diversification strategy and it's all key to a progressive trade agenda. The Prime Minister is very, he very much defends the idea, saying if we don't have all these things on labor, environment, gender equality, that's how everyday working people feel left out and that's how you end up with a Donald Trump. So he thinks it's vital that these trade deals show everyday people, if they're going, and people like Jerry Diaz, that they're going to move forward and improve lives for working people. Quickly, before we move on to the next topic, though, is that even possible with China? When you're talking about progressive chapters on gender, on labor standards, I mean, we are here, they are as far apart as, as they can get. This isn't Japan, this isn't Australia, this isn't the United States, even. How do you, you know, is it even possible? Well, just quickly, China's very much ready to, to move forward on environment. They want to take the, mm -hmm. the, the, the vacuum that the, of U.S. leadership, U.S. has withdrawn from Paris, China wants to step up. Gender equality, they're ready to move there. Labor standards is the big sticking point. It's just a completely different labor market than anywhere else in the world. Okay, let me ask you, Joanna, about fighter jets. Uh, we found out this week that next week that we anticipate the government will announce not only a, an open competition to replace, permanently replace them, but they're going to buy used Australian fighter jets, which are the same age as the mm -hmm. ones they're replacing, as an interim measure. You know, why, what, what do you make of, of the government's lines on this, and, and is there any way to defend their position? Well, the whole idea behind the sort of interim purchase, the stopgap, of course, was to sort of buy them more time to sort of figure out how to do mm -hmm. the major competition. They had a huge stumbling box along the way, promising on the campaign trail to rule out the F-35. I'm not sure how that solves the problem of it not being an open competition if you sort of <laughs> completely rule out one of the ones that caused the problem of the, the competition in the first place. Um, but, you know, they chose this interim uh, measure of the Super Hornets by Boeing. And then, of course, there was, that was scuttled by this huge uh, trade dispute with Boeing and, and the U.S. And, and if you remember when British Prime Minister Theresa May was here, Trudeau really surprised us all by coming right out and saying, we're not going to do business with a company trying to sue us. Um, it didn't really work because just a few days later, we got this huge tariff on on the C series for Bombardier, sort of the, you know, very important company in Canadian politics. It's really impossible to overstate uh, the role that plays. So, so he was sort of stuck, right? You can't play a really hard game and then sort of go ahead with the purchase anyway. So I think they sort of felt boxed in a little bit, and now they need that stopgap, and now they're turning to Australia. The criticism, of course, is that by making this interim purchase, you're just putting off actually making the permanent one, which is a huge purchase. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't be the first government to do that. The last one did that as well. There is so many blunders over procurement, especially these jets. Why hasn't it really translated into votes? Uh, well, again, it hasn't translated into votes because a lot of Canadians just think this is the way it is because that's the way it's been <laughs> for 30 years. And, 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 you know, I'm very much one of those who thinks we should be spending more on defense, not because we're a war-fighting nation, but we need search and rescue planes. We need to be able to defend uh, our Arctic shores, which are now, there's a lot of open water up there, and we don't have a Navy, really, that can go up there. So, but every time you go to the electorate, that's that's a low priority for Canadians at the polls. It is in ridings with there's bases. And so, again, uh, fumbling away on fighter jets, we saw Michael Ignatieff run an entire campaign on the F-35s. And yeah. 
that didn't seem to go so well. So it, it doesn't resonate with voters. That doesn't mean to say that a government needs to get a hold of this. It's an important thing. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of fumbling, uh, this week on the Hill, uh, Minister of Disabilities, Minister of Disabilities, and Sports Minister Kent here, uh, you know, thalidomide survivors coming forward and saying that he was dismissive of them and, and basically made a comment alleging that that he, uh, 10 years lifespan, that they, that, you know, they might only have 10 years to live and that that's a good thing for the government yeah, of Canada. So that someone else coming forward and saying he was condescending to her an apology, but no resignation. Uh, do you think a resignation is, is coming, or, or will he, you know, can he survive this? Well, the, the first apology was really weak, sort mm -hmm. of said, you know, kind of got really defensive, said the, what I said was mis misattributed to me. Um, the second one, I think what might buy him some time or some good grace was in question period last week, he, he sort of really acknowledged that he can be insensitive and brash and inappropriate, and he's going to be taking steps to better himself in that way. Um, I think it will really depend on what exactly he does and whether this is sort of, he actually has learned his lesson. What we have seen in the past with, with cabinet ministers who have been sort of inappropriate or that uh, they may not be, you know, forced out immediately because that creates a whole other scandal on its own, but in the next cabinet shuffle we may see him once again demoted. We were, we were, remember, night is day in China and day is night. It's a 13-hour time difference. So we were waking up every morning, the traveling press, and going, Kent Hare said what? Yeah. I mean, it was just gobsmacking. But here's the political reality. Right now, there's only one liberal MP in Calgary, and that's Kent Hare. That protects him. He has already been demoted, essentially, in one shuffle from Veterans Affairs to what is one of the most minor and junior portfolios in Cabinet. I don't know if he can be demoted much further down, but he's got that one job in Calgary. Did the Liberals say the political calculus, we're not going to have a liberal MP, a Cabinet Minister from Calgary? Whew, that's a tough call for a prime minister. Do we put another person in from Edmonton? There, you know, Randy Bossineau is the only other sort of non-Albertan non that's not in cabinet. Maybe that's a solution. But I think, you know, prime minister in a tough spot. Ken Hare has mm -hmm. been underperforming. I'm glad to hear that he's taking some training. Maybe that's what will <laughs> help. But there's got to be a little yeah. blue. got to be, if you've got an MP in Calgary, you've got to put that MP in cabinet. We've only got about 25 seconds, right? but I wanted to ask you, were you surprised at sort of the lack of outrage until the end of the week from the opposition? They still had their guns focused on Morneau, even though this seemed to be a very blatant, egregious example. Yeah, of, well, I, I think the key is that we saw their own sort of uh, issues with, with personal conflicts yeah. this week with James Bazan and his remarks from uh, earlier this year to yeah. Sherry Romanato, right? So they, they probably felt a little bit, if they make too big a deal of right. that, then they'd be caught sort of defending themselves. Again. Okay. Unfortunately, I have to leave it there, but thank you both for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Vash. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.